And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show and an episode that all the cool kids are calling a listener's question show. Hurrah! My name is Ryan Bailey. Joining me today is a man who found out that young boys burn isn't just a problem you have in your youth if you don't use adequate protection. Taylor Rockwell. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it was a game yesterday. Uh, up 1-0 when Joe and I started recording and then things took a turn. Uh, not the way I wanted it to go, but it's an American scoring in the Champions League, so at least there is that. Yeah, a little, little uh, consolation prize for you, if you will, Taylor. It wasn't a, uh, wasn't a very fun evening for you, I'm guessing. It wasn't. It was not. Ryan, I just want you to know that uh, I'm trying to shift like the... Uh, the, the negativity away from me and the result yesterday onto you by multiple times I've just contemplated pretending like I couldn't hear you and your internet and your internet connection cut out again. Uh, but I won't do that to you when we're recording live. I'll just say, yeah, not the most fun time yesterday, but hopefully a better time today. That's a spirit, old boy. Also here is a man who is much greater authority on soccer than Nicki Minaj's on epidemiology. It's Graham Ruthman. <laughs> 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 yeah, that that has been a wild ride. Uh, I have no idea what's going on there. Uh, I'm also still reeling from your young boys burn joke, and I will also never not laugh that young boys burn play in the Wankdorf Stadium. Um, but that's just me. Um, that probably doesn't reflect well on me that I still find that funny. I'm literally laughing out loud, Graham. <laughs> Graham, you have such an immature sense of humour. Why would you bring up something like that? <laughs> Says Ryan Bailey. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> Honestly. Anyway, completing our awesome foursome today is a man oh, who boy. can break down the beautiful game with the ease and poise of Bayern Munich players strolling into the opposition penalty area in the new camp, Joe Lowry. Oh, my word. Ba- uh, Barcelona are in absolute shambles right now. That's not news, right? But just when you see how far they've fallen, there was this picture of Jordi Alba floating across Twitter And you can't help but look at it and think, man, what has happened to this group of players? Bayern Munich, on the other hand, stay good, which is not a surprise to anyone. Something that was a surprise to me, Joe, looking at the account Barca Universal on Twitter earlier today, uh, a mention of another Jordi, or Jordi, if you will. Uh, The tweet said, if Koeman is sacked, Jordi Cruyff would be the one to take over as interim manager. Is that a move of a competent organisation, Joe? I'm not sure. Uh, I think it's safe to assume that most moves that Barcelona make are are probably not the moves of a competent organization. The one thing I can see happening here is if somehow Jordi Cruyff comes in and takes on all the characteristics of Johan Cruyff and starts the 3-4-3 system in the academy and we just do this thing all over again, maybe we can just hit the absolute refresh button for Barcelona and they will go through the exact same life cycle they have gone through for the last 40 years. That doesn't feel very likely to me, but hey, that's a one in a million shot and maybe Barcelona will find it. I'm just confused why, like, you go, why would you go for Jordi Cruyff when if you want a... 
like a a Dutch footballer, a former Dutch footballer with famous family members. I mean, Frank De Boer is right there. Oh, I feel like that just solves a lot of problems. So let's get Frank De Boer to Barcelona and make some things happen. Boom. I mean, if if you want a Dutch soccer player who was, you know, better than Jordi Cruyff, you've got Ronald Koeman as well. (laughs) <laughs> well, there's that too. There is that that Ronald Koeman thing. I thought he fixed Barcelona. I thought we uh, we settled that this weekend that he had solved all the problems and things were fine now. Uh, yeah, not so sure about <laughs> that. T- Taylor, I've got a fun fact for you. I was present yeah. at Jordi Cruyff's Manchester United debut. A little uh, trivia for you. Do you know which game that was? So you're the one. Uh, no, I don't. It was the opening game of the 96-97 season. Uh, Manchester United 3, Wimbledon 0. David Beckham scored from a long way out that day, Taylor. That's that seems to be what he does. I thought you were going to say that Jordi Cruyff lived in your street, because that tends to be the way that these conversations go. <laughs> I mean, he's in my house right now, but I didn't want to, you know, bring right, that yeah. up. Actually, Graham. Yeah, thank you very much. Ryan, uh, serious question: What do you have more faith in, Italian bureaucracy or Barcelona bureaucracy? Like, which one, if you had to deal with them, which one do you trust to get things right? I have dealt with Italian bureaucracy, Taylor. Uh-huh. Uh, Barcelona bureaucracy wins hands down, no matter what it does. <laughs> I'm sure our Italian listeners will love this. Our Italian uh, Italian government officials as well will certainly love this. Yeah, but by the way, listen, I'm not sure I've actually made this clear on the show. Um I a couple of weeks ago I moved to Rome, Italy. I don't know if I've actually broadcast that at any point. So I'm I'm, I'm having Wait, some Italy. I thought it was I thought it was Rome, North Carolina. Yeah, Rome, Rome Georgia. Georgia. Yeah. yeah, Rome, Georgia was the one. Uh, <laughs> then we chose the other Rome in the end. Um but it, it's quite interesting. Actually, I'll tell you what. I was invited to play my wife is a teacher. We came here because my wife is a teacher and there's a British school here in Rome. Uh and I was invited by the other teachers to play in a game of soccer this Friday, this coming Friday. Very exciting excited by that but I'm a bit worried because there might be some students there and uh, we live two kilometers from Formello which is where oh, Lazio train <laughs> uh, and both uh, Pe- uh, Pepe Reina and Lucas Leiva's kids go to this school I'm terrified they're going to be in this game and I'm going to be embarrassed by small children who are much better than me at soccer <laughs> that, that feels like a realistic fear Ryan I'd love to tell you oh don't worry like you'll be fine but this does feel like a problem that you could actually encounter on Friday. Good luck. Yeah. I mean, uh, Taylor's already been embarrassed by long, uh, young boys this week. I don't want that to happen twice in a week to us, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. As, as long as, like, Jose Mourinho's children aren't there, you, or, otherwise you're getting poked in the eye. <laughs> uh, Roma, by the way, train on the other side of town to where I'm at, so I don't have a... Tammy Abraham was my brother's neighbour. He's not my neighbour. I'm very sad about that, but I'll go find Aww. him and say hi. Do I do that? <laughs> I mean, you'd have another English speaker to help you navigate uh, like the worlds of when Italian plumbers come over and have set the audacity com, to not be named Mario and Luigi. Com. There we go. There we go. <laughs> who's the Who's the footballer you most want to put with Ryan Bailey in that sitcom, Graham? Like Gaza would be the one, but that feels like it would be more tragic than anything else. So who would be the one that we should put in a sitcom with Ryan Bailey? Uh, Antonio Cassano. Oh, boy. Would- <laughs> <laughs> Will we both be in our underpants at all times? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you you already do that, so... <laughs> I think you're basically just, like, doing a, a rematch of Two and a Half Men, is what that sounds like. Because one is a sort of uh, by-the-books fellow who wants things done a certain way, and <laughs> one person is a, an extreme Lothario who's, like, a constant crazy person, and... I, I could see Ryan, like, delivering pastries for Cassano at the end of every episode. That makes a lot of sense to me. Hang yeah, on, if I'm the extreme needs- Lothario, what's Cassano, Taylor? Hey. <laughs> I don't think I love- you want to be Charlie Sheen, Ryan Bailey. I'm pretty sure you don't. Yeah. 
I'm I'm good with that. But I'll give you one more anecdote. I went to um, my school. My school. Uh, my daughters go to the school that my wife works at. I went to the first day of school uh, with my youngest daughter, and Pepe Reina was in the classroom. His kid is in my uh, kid's school, which I th- in in her class, which is a uh, pretty cool. And uh, we're going to become best friends forever. I think is how that's going to work. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> that's I mean, fine. At this stage. It seems like Pepe Reina's, Pepe, Pepe Reina's following you more than he follows Rafa Benitez. Uh, it seems like he's everywhere you go. <laughs> he is indeed. Anywho, enough about me and my business. Shall we get to some listener questions, gentlemen? I'm going to start off with one from Cigar Sura Magiri, who asks, is there a case... I love this question, by the way, Cigar. Thank you very much for this. Is there a case for an FA Cup-style World Cup where all 200-plus countries go off in a two-legged knockoff and knockoff knockoff two-legged knockout round, I presume he means, and the final eight, and then come together to a venue for a single elimination one-week final. Would it be more entertaining and more just than the current World Cup format? Additional notes that Cigar gives us: like the FA Cup, the lower-ranked countries could go in earlier rounds, and higher-ranked nations could enter the tournament in slightly later rounds. I'm going to say off the bat, I love this idea. I love the idea of a complete knockout. Like, just make the whole thing a knockout tournament, like the FA Cup. That would be incredibly entertaining. It'd be like March Madness, wouldn't it? Except for FIFA would make a lot more money than they do from that tournament. Like, you could get like the soccer equivalent, Taylor, of the Baylor Bears coming from nowhere to win it. And yes, I looked Baylor. up who the Baylor Bears were. <laughs> Baylor. Baylor. Oh. Baylor. That's Keep going. You, you got it, also, right. You're doing great. How do you say it? Are they like also a Viking Jarl? Baylor versus Baylor? Um, yeah. Baylor? Yeah, no. That, I think, how about them yeah, Baylor you, Bears? Wow. <laughs> Almost better. God. Uh, uh, yeah, not surprisingly, I think if you are a person who doesn't like the World Cup qualifying, you will agree with Ryan that this is a good idea. If you're a person mm. who has no real problems with World Cup qualifying like me, you will think that maybe this does not solve some of the problems uh, inherent to World Cup qualification and its current format. Hear me out, okay? Let me let me give you a format, Taylor. Mm-hmm. See if you like this. There's 210 FIFA nations, right? Let, uh, by comparison, let's say the FA Cup, it has 124 teams in the competition proper. There's around s- over 700 in total, but they go through qualifying rounds to get to that 124. What if, out of the 210 FIFA nations, we make it a 128-team bracket, a seeded bracket? So the, the, to get from the 210 to 128, you do qualifiers, and then 128 in the final. So 64 games, first round, then 32 games, 16, 8, 4, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Seven rounds proper there. And, you know, so, so you've got 128 teams in the proper one, 82 teams going through qualifying. So you have San Marinos, your Virgin Islands, your USMNTs, you know, the smaller teams. They'll come through qualifying. <laughs> Sorry, that was an un- unnecessary dig. But um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the bonus here, as you mentioned, Taylor, no need for qualification, which is the most boring thing in the world. Discuss. Yeah, so we, we just disagree on that because I think you're coming from a very English perspective. We're like, oh, we're going to cruise the qualifying. Qualifying is stupid. Most countries, turns out, are not England. Some even win the World Cup, so proving they're definitively not England. Uh, but, the, but I think a larger percentage of them use World Cup qualifying as a way to get meaningful games more consistently. And if anything, this goes against that idea. So I think CONCACAF trying to change things so that more teams are involved in World Cup qualification longer to get the meaningful games versus if you have the 210th team playing somebody ranked considerably higher above them, not sure who's paying those travel costs, but also that team is going to get squashed and then that is it for them for another four years. And I think that maybe isn't quite the wholesome, holistic, growing the game 
idea that FIFA theoretically won, even if FIFA realistically just want money. Yeah, well, and Taylor, that's that's something very similar to my beef with this idea. I love the idea. It's incredibly creative, and I think it would be a lot of fun. But I don't think it's a more just way of doing this, right? In this model, you could be a really low-ranked team or even a, a mid-tier team that we might see in the current World Cup format, someone ranked you know, between 50 and 100 in the FIFA rankings. And you could still lose after one game, maybe two games in this particular idea. And so it, it does give everybody a game, which is cool, but it could actually end up with the smaller nations getting fewer World Cup games than they already do. And then you add to that the lack of World Cup qualifiers, which I think is a great point. I think that's that's a that's a little bit of an issue with this idea. I, I also have questions over how this tournament's being hosted. <laughs> like, you think uh, it's difficult to have like, 210 uh, nations in one place at one time, Graham? Uh, yeah, I think that might be a, a slight difficulty. Um, I, as a general rule, I'm in favour of anything that limits the number of international breaks for qualifiers. That's That's my biggest gripe with the format just now. Um, it doesn't just it, it doesn't benefit the club game at the moment because it fragments the season and it doesn't benefit the international game because it's difficult to build up excitement and momentum and the games just kind of land on your lap and you've not had much time to, to build up to those qualifiers but I feel like putting everyone in an FA Cup style competition doesn't really solve that problem unless you then fragment it into different international breaks and then you just have the same problem again. Um, so I love the idea of a, of a straight knockout tournament. It would certainly be entertaining and maybe Scotland would make a few rounds every so often. But as Taylor says, if don't we don't make a, a few rounds, then we've got another four to eight years to wait. So yeah, that, that doesn't really fill <laughs> yeah. me with much enthusiasm. I do wonder what would happen uh, to Ryan's optimism about this format if England had a shock loss to, say, Scotland and how much he would love World Cup qualifying then. Though I do know that Ryan has it on good authority that Nicki Minaj's cousin's friend says that the people in Trinidad <laughs> are totally on board for this qualifying format. So at least there's that. <laughs> Um, so, so I think Cigar, by the way, is a future FIFA president because think how much FIFA would love this. Um, you, you'd get, a lot. If, my, if my math is right, you'd get 127 games out of this if you did a 128-team uh, bracket. Uh, you get 64 games in the first round. That's as many as in the entire World Cup. FIFA would absolutely love that. And I agree with Graham that there will be a problem with staging because maybe well, then again, the Olympics gets every nation basically in the same place at one time. But I think the issue would be, say if you're South Sudan and you have to fly to the other side of the world and you get one game, that's not quite going to cut it when you're a poor nation with, a, say, a lower GDP that's not going to be able to justify that kind of thing. And also maybe people don't love it so much if Brazil or, I don't know, a big nation, France, don't win their first game and then things get a little more spicy. But I personally would really like to see this. Can we try How about this? We'll just try it once. We've tried a, a Winter World Cup in Qatar. How about the next one we book? Let's just try one of these. See what happens. What do you think, Joe? <laughs> you with me? Now, God, now you sound like the FIFA president. <laughs> Let's just try it. We'll make Let's us money. We'll see what happens. Yeah. No, I, Ryan, I think for you, and, and only for you, we need to call up FIFA. We can make this happen. We'll give it one shot. We'll give the U.S. Men's National Team a bye to the final round. And I think that's a way that everybody can be happy with this arrangement i'm glad everybody agrees with me that was everybody right mm-hmm. sure totally yeah, totally i mean 
I think, Ryan, your point that World Cup qualifying is not the most fun is, like, I understand where you're coming from. I, I think, again, that's rooted in your team being consistently good and consistently qualifying. It would be interesting to have a, a larger conversation about ways in which we could tweak World Cup qualifying, and I think that's the thing that people are constantly doing, both having those conversations and trying to tweak it. Because I think there's ways to make it more compelling and probably over a shorter time frame to condense some things and make it easier so maybe that's a conversation for the future but for now i say stick with what works as opposed to a giant uh global tournament that sends people all over the place and uh maybe increases the travel funds a little bit indeed well if anything taylor we're going to find out if arsene wenger is a listener of total soccer show because if he starts suggesting this in a day or two we'll know (laughs) where he got the idea from thank you very much for that question let's get one more in before we go to a break jay fisher asks why aren't countries required to play in their continent's confederation uh, i understand says jay why guyana and Suriname would want to play in Concacaf and israel in uefa but why in the world are kazakhstan armenia azerbaijan and georgia in uefa um gents the one that stood out to me in this question is australia who uh, mm-hmm. play in the AFC and not the OFC, which geographically they would naturally belong to. Australia actually switched to the AFC in 2005. And one of the catalysts for doing so was in 2001. They got a 31 to nothing win over American Samoa. It's the biggest international game victory ever. Uh, they had a striker on the field called Archie Thompson, who got 13 goals in that one. Not bad for a day's work, I would say. Uh, they moved out of the AFC for one reason, that it was quite an unbalanced opposition they were facing there. And yeah. uh, the AFC were happy with them leaving because essentially it blocked the path for the other 11 teams every time. And another benefit for Australia leaving the AFC was that um, they didn't have to battle for an automatic qualifying spot They because the OFC only gets, I think you can call it, half a qualifying spot. They don't yep. get a guaranteed one. Um, As I understand it, that was the main reason they left is because they didn't want that playoff anymore because playoffs are so precarious. See the last question. They are, and, and as, as I say, the, the rest of the OFC would be happy with that because the, uh, Australia yep. would invariably end up in that playoff at the expense of all the other nations there. Um, I have uh, some notes on how and why teams can switch federations, but I've been talking for too long. Joe, do you want to take the mic? Absolutely. So to get to the root of Jay's question, as I understand it, why aren't countries required to play in their continent's confederation? The answer to that is because FIFA says you don't have to do that, right? FIFA's continental confederations aren't really all that continental, and they haven't been for a long time now. FIFA doesn't require their confederations to only house teams on a specific continent. The confederations are loosely based on geographical boundaries uh, of continents all over the world. So for some of the countries that Jay's getting at, uh, Kazakhstan, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia, the the border between Europe and Asia is not all that well-defined, and depending on where you are in some of those countries, I think culturally they could identify more with one, uh, with, with Europe or Asia, depending on where you are. Um, but but the truth is, those countries can really be wherever they want in that particular situation. And one reason why I think all four of them did end up in UEFA is because they're all former uh, parts of the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union competed in European competitions. So when Kazakhstan and Armenia and Azerbaijan and Georgia gained their independence from the Soviet Union, they also began competing in European competitions. It makes a lot of sense logistically to continue that trend. So that's that's one more specific reason as to why maybe those countries are doing what they're doing. But Israel, which is mentioned in the question, and, and Guyana and Suriname and Australia, like you mentioned, Ryan, there are a number of different examples of countries and, and FIFA nations that don't compete in their continental confederation. And the reason for that is because they don't have to. Yeah. yeah. If, if you can make a compelling enough case 
to FIFA. So Israel's case is a, is a political one, Australia's was a, a competitive one. So if you can make a strong enough case, if Scotland could make a strong enough case to FIFA for us to be admitted to CONCACAF, there is nothing that would stop us in the rulebook from making that move. Obviously, FIFA would reject that 100 times out of 100, but in principle, that could happen. And you've seen that. I know that the example I'm going to use is not the perfect example because they haven't changed confederation, but just look at how Qatar are technically involved in World Cup qualifying in UEFA for the 2022 World yeah. Cup. Now, obviously, their fixtures are friendlies they're not they're not contributing any points but they are still in group a technically in, in european qualifying so the case that they've made to fifa is well uh, you could debate what their case is but they would argue that it's to prepare for the world cup so they're getting slightly more competitive games and so yeah it's a case-by-case -case basis um and as soon as australia joined eurovision then everything was up for grabs after that it, that was the watershed in my in my book yeah so do you think it's all related to eurovision specifically graham Yes, exactly. Yeah, hand in 100%. hand. Sorry, Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, everything should be related to Eurovision. I think that's a fair point to make. Uh, I think, for me, it's less about the competitive side of things because like, if Armenia wanted to compete in Asia, I think that they're going to consistently make it further in qualifying than we've seen them make it for World Cup qualifying. I think a lot of it has to do with like where how they identify culturally. And I think there's plenty of people in Azerbaijan and Armenia who would have fine relations with their uh, Asian neighbors, but I think also have more historical connections to Europe. And I think, honestly, the same goes for uh, Suriname, for example, or Guyana, that I don't think either one of those federations, it's not like they chose it based on, hey, we're going to like do way better in CONCACAF than South America. As I understand it, it's that they are basically cut off from the rest of South America by a gigantic mountain range. So they tend to gravitate more towards the Caribbean, more towards Caribbean countries and, and that sort of like culture. And so that's where they identify that's the federation they choose or the confederation they choose to go with. And I think that ends up being the case for most of these. And I think Joe's right, the Soviet Union angle and being part of the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union playing in Europe, that shapes things considerably as well. So in that case, Taylor, do you think there could ever be a, a, a move down the line that, the, say, the US or CONCACAF and, and Comnebol could combine? If they write a nice enough letter to the FIFA executive committee, we could completely blur the lines of continental federations in theory. Oh, I, I think that is a thing that has been discussed. And I think that's a thing that certain groups are desperate to have happen because at this point it's comparable with, with 12 countries. CONCACAF uh, has what, like 43, 44? I forget. Uh, but yeah, I think I think there there is probably a movement towards making that happen because you'd get more, a stronger sort of regional competition compared to the Euros and you'd get huge TV revenue from it. But you would also get different ways to vary up qualifying and you could combine the spots to then divvy them up and have more interesting qualifying groups. Yeah, I think that's something that they would like to do, especially as we go towards expanded tournaments and World Cups every two years and uh, confederations not really mattering that much anymore. Joe, um, before we leave this question, Graham floated the idea of Scotland being in CONCACAF qualifying there. No. Firstly, what do you think about no. Scotland in the Ocho? And um, I think maybe I mean, if, if you had some European flavour in CONCACAF, it might make you dislike qualifiers as much as I do. I feel like, <laughs> I feel like the Ocho might be our spiritual home, to be honest, as, yeah, a, as I, a footballing nation. 
I'm concerned that Scotland would adapt too well to the Ocho. Yeah. I agree with you, Graham. I think that that might fit very, very well. I don't want to see uh, Andy Robertson and Kieran and Tierney overlapping each other down the left side, the U.S.'s right side at any point in the well, future. Have to be so healthy to do that, Joe. They oh, you're right. That's healthy. not really yeah. a risk, is it? No, and and a, Billy Gilmore would have to not hang out with Mason Mount in major tournaments. <laughs> but otherwise, I, I, yeah, I don't want this. <laughs> Graham, stay in your own confederation. Yeah. <laughs> uh, sorry. Graham, how- how will the Scotland team cope with going to qualify in the Caribbean? Is there enough sunblock in the world for that to happen? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we might have to leave the, the redheads at home for that, for that away trip. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Jay Fisher, thank you very much for your question. We'll be back with more after this break. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, we are back with your listener questions. This one from Nathan S. Mr. S. Would Landon Donovan be a good <laughs> USMNT head coach? He seems to be doing well uh, within San Diego. On the club side, hiring a club legend without much experience hasn't worked for more than a season or two, but he, but the boost he would give the team could be enough to get us to Qatar if Berhalter really is on the hot seat after the first window. An intriguing proposition, gents. I'll ask, uh, I'll put this one to Joe and Taylor first. How much danger is Berhalter in in terms of losing his seat? Taylor? I would say not very much. I think U.S. soccer historically is going to be slow to pull a trigger when they want to sack a manager. Uh, Even with Klinsman, I think it was the third time they had considered or tried to fire him when they eventually fired him. Uh, There are extenuating circumstances there. But for Berhalter, I think to acknowledge that they got that wrong after the coaching search, I think there is an element of U.S. soccer wouldn't want to, to sort of show that they got things wrong themselves. But I think there is also the idea that Berhalter has won two pieces of silverware this summer. He's bringing through younger players. He's getting dual nationals on board. It seems like the team is, for the most part, bought in. So I think there are plenty of reasons or signs for like positive growth, whereas I think in times past when they had to make changes, it was when it clearly wasn't working, the squad was divided, results weren't coming, and so things needed to, uh, to be changed up. But I don't think Berhalter is under much pressure at all. Taylor, does that does that still hold water? If and obviously we're dealing in hypotheticals here, but if we get if we get further through the Ocho and mm-hmm. and things don't improve that much, and then obviously the PTSD of what happened happened mm-hmm. last time kicks in, and you've got two or three games to save qualification to the World Cup, do they make a change there? Again, I, I appreciate we're speculating here, but we're, yeah. like how how committed would US Soccer be to everything that you just said? if it meant not making the the World Cup? Yeah, I mean, that is a very fair question. And we talked about this a little bit when we did our last review, that like Joe and I went into qualifying very confident. Like Berhalter has earned our sort of patience. He has earned our belief in what he's doing. And we came out of it 
still thinking that, but just a little bit shakier. If they hadn't gotten that final win, if they'd started qualifying with, say, three draws, I think the spin from U.S. soccer would be that it was a young squad, that he was dealing with so many injuries, and we've got to wait and see what happens. If that next round of qualifying went poorly, and maybe they only got one win and a loss and a draw, or two two draws and a loss, that's where I think they would have to come about and like make decisive action I still think they would be slow to do it and I think the lack of public comment from Ernie Stewart or from Brian McBride uh, from anybody in sort of a leadership position from the technical side of things I think you could take that as they're sort of having these conversations behind the scenes and maybe they are but I think what you're really seeing is U.S. soccer being pretty content with how things are Maybe that changes. That probably changes if things did not go well in that next break. But that's that's my sort of read on things. Joe, what about you? I'm in a similar place to you. I had I certainly had some reservations about Greg Berhalter and his time in charge before World Cup qualifying started. Some of the warning signs had been there even in those final wins over Mexico, and we talked about those things. So it wasn't everything's rosy with Greg Berhalter. But I think five points was kind of the minimum for this first window, and they managed to get to that minimum number of points. If the Honduras game had gone differently, that final game of World Cup qualifying in the U.S. had lost that game, we might be having a completely different conversation right now. This might be a whole different show about the new U.S. men's national team manager, but the U.S. found a way to get that result. Greg Berhalter did make some proactive changes to fix the mistakes that he had sort of put out there on the field. So we're not in that reality right now. I I, I agree. I think if World Cup qualifying continues and the U.S. is in a position where they are at risk of not qualifying, you would see action from U.S. soccer at that point. But barring that situation, I don't think Berhalter is really on the hot seat right now. Joe, I have another question for you that, that bridges the gap between this and Ryan wanting us to change the format of qualifying. <laughs> the, the thing that I have heard kind of consistently since uh, that last round of qualifying is the idea that Berhalter just overcomplicates, that there's an element of... Uh, like wanting to be Pep or overcomplicating the way Pep sometimes does, basically. And if we did have the sort of uh, lose and you're out, win and you're in uh, version of a tournament for qualifying, do you think the U.S. plays better? Because I think they probably do. I think if backs are against the wall and he's got to get a result, I think Berhalter can get that done. I think maybe where we where we see some issues is the tinkering, maybe trying to be too clever, trying to change things a little bit or have a player play out of position because maybe they can do it and then maybe they can't versus just putting people in the positions to win. Do you think a knockout sort of format helps him get the best out of the team and best out of himself? Uh, no, not, not really. Um, like, like you play, you play those finals against Mexico a hundred times. I don't think the U S wins 51 of those times that we saw over the summer. And I think you need to be confident in the team winning at least 51 times out of a hundred to feel good about entering a knockout format. And I I don't think we've seen enough evidence of the U S. I mean, you just go back a little bit earlier in nations league or in the gold cup in a knockout game, a win or go home game. And the U S was pretty uninspiring in those games against Honduras and nations league against Qatar in, in, the Gold Cup, I don't think we've seen enough dominance from the U.S. in a win-or-go-home situation to to make me think that they would thrive all the more in sort of the Ryan Bailey uh, knockout format. The Ryan Bailey knockout format. I like the sound of that. Can we the cigar that? knockout format. Never mind. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, gents, how about Nathan's question specifically about Landon Donovan and his uh, potential status as U.S. MNT head coach of course we know he coaches the San Diego Loyal the team he helped co-found surrounded himself with a pretty experienced backroom staff there you guys would probably agree though that the USL the USL championships a different kettle of fish to coaching the national team and it got me thinking about former players who do well coaching their respective national teams I mean just look at Maradona Argentina that went 
Well, right. <laughs> maybe Didier Deschamps is a better example there. But uh, I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, maybe I'll come to you, Joe, and your thoughts on Landon Donovan and his potential as a coach there. And also, it would be disloyal to leave the loyal, wouldn't it? Oh, you had to. I knew there was going to be a loyal pun. It was just too easy. Um, <laughs> I, I can see Landon Donovan at some point coaching the U.S. men's national team. That point is not now and probably not before 2026 and, and that World Cup in the United States, Mexico, and Canada. He's just too green at this point, in in my view at least. Maybe he has some incredible managerial qualities that haven't quite been on display yet. He took over as San Diego's manager. He started in that role in November 2019 as the team was being founded, as you mentioned, Ryan. Debuted in the USL Championship as a manager in March of 2020. So he's only coached about 40 games between last year, which was a little bit weird with COVID, obviously, and this year's. 40 games. That's not a lot, right? And San Diego weren't all that good last year, to be honest. They were okay, and they're a, they're a bit above average this year. They're a, they're a solid team playing out here in the West, but I don't think he has enough experience. It's too early for me. The coaching talent, there is absolutely coaching talent in the USL, I should say. I think that, that a lot of the coaches there are fully capable of moving to a higher level and coaching at a higher level, but I don't think moving from San Diego Loyal to the U.S. Men's National Team is the right move for the U.S. at all. And I certainly don't think it's the right move for Landon Donovan at this point in his coaching career. I, I think that would be way too big of a jump and would put him in a situation where he's not really set up to succeed. The, the way, the, the, way the, the question is posed, it makes it seem like Donovan being brought in to, to give the boost to get the U.S. to the, to the World Cup. And I couldn't help but think of... Uh, Alan Shearer being brought in as Newcastle United manager to Absolutely. save them from relegation. Which he did, <laughs> and yeah. so that, that tale alone would make me would make me wary of bringing in a legendary player as a special ops manager. Yeah, and like I don't see the logic behind a move like that. I don't understand why a lot of the issues in situations like that is you don't have a solidified on-field approach. And so you bring in a former player whose expertise is more so in the man management side is more so dealing and I'm not saying this is true with Landon Donovan but I think in a lot of cases this will be true their their expertise is not on the tactical on field this is how we need to play these are how we can take advantage of opponents I don't understand why you would almost downgrade in that department to try and put your team over the that that doesn't make sense to me what 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 about bringing in Donovan as like a like a first team coach or a forwards coach? Yeah, or yeah, that's kind of kind of kind of like how England did. England not have Beckham for a major tournament or something when he wasn't playing a little bit like yeah. that. Yeah, there's value in that. I, I think that's a much more appealing option to me than than bringing him in as the guy in charge. Yeah, I think when we're talking about a player like this or like a move like this, to me, it is the comfort blanket idea of you're bringing someone who's been there, who understands the locker room, who can get the best out of the players, but maybe isn't the best tactical solution. And in that way, it reminds me of that brief period of time in like 2016 or 2017 when when at least Twitter was like, what about The Rock running for president? What, what about Oprah? And it's like, <laughs> have we learned nothing? Like, let's just get people who know what they're doing in there and then let's see where we go from here. And I feel like that's kind of the same with Donovan. The comfort blanket thing is interesting. My slightly maybe controversial take is that we're still talking about a guy who hasn't like played a meaningful game for the U.S. since, what, 2013, thereabouts, or 2014 when he was left off the roster. So seven years removed, I, I don't know how much like comfort he would bring to that locker room. Basically, I don't know how much connection he has with that squad. And this is me speaking completely out of ignorance, but it is a question I have after he kind of came out and talked about McKinney a little bit. And and there were just a few little like like passive, non-specific tweets about like former players talking in the media. And it just made me wonder if he is as beloved of a figure in the locker room as he is to U.S. fans. Again, speculating here, but if we're going 
with the comfort blanket approach, I say bring in Clint Dempsey to be oh, your yeah. goal scoring uh, coach. That's the one that I feel like maybe has the swagger, has the rep, has the sort of chemistry and connection. And you can see it uh, when he's doing his halftime pregame stuff. He just seems to have that level of confidence and swagger that the U.S. might be needing. So I say bring in Clint Dempsey as our, our backup coach. I'm going to take it a step further, Taylor. If you really want the comfort blanket, America's comfort blanket, if you will, Tom Hanks for coach. <laughs> That's <laughs> hardest of hard passes. <laughs> what? Tom Hanks would be good at anything, Taylor. You oh, Tom Hanks. I'm sorry. I heard Tom Cruise. Tom Hanks I'm fine with. Tom Cruise, I don't need anywhere near this U.S. national team. Even if I feel like his training regimen for the Mission Impossible movies would put us in the best shape we've ever been in. Uh, but then we might break down for several years like he did while filming the Mission Impossible yeah, franchise. I'm, I'm, not in, I'm not entirely sure Scientology would be the best exactly. uh, soccer <laughs> philosophy. I mean, Glenn Hoddle tried it at the 98 World Cup as England manager, but... Uh, <laughs> I think Beckham yeah. dabbled as well. Our second Beckham <laughs> reference in this in this uh, question. And I should say, like, I don't... Again, I don't know what Landon Donovan's relationship is with a lot of the current players, but I think it's tough to find a person in U.S. soccer right now who would just... would be that sort of calm persona that's going to get everybody on board and like i think we thought it was going to be bruce arena which is a weird thing to say about uh, in 2018 i don't know who that player or person from major league soccer would be this time around uh, i guess the logical candidate would be bob bradley but i don't think of bob bradley as the the warm soft uh happy <laughs> person either just ask sebi salazar indeed nathan thank you very much for that question let's move on to one from je mcgimsey quality handle there and mls games i've attended and seen there's a small but significant percentage of women and girls in the stands maybe 10 to 20 percent says je however from epl streams it seems the proportion in england is much much smaller is this an actual cultural difference between the us and england or am i imagining it and if so is there any effort to get more women interested in spending money attending EPL games. I'll say from the outset, gents, um, when I first came to the US and I went to, uh, in Charlotte, I went to Panthers games, I went to Hornet games, I was shocked at how many women attended and loved sports. Um, culturally, I think it's much bigger for women to be at sports uh, events in the US than it is in the UK. Um, gr growing up, going to soccer games, I would say if it's 10 to 20% that, that JEC is in the stands in, in, in MLS games, I'd say it's a far fewer that you would generally see in, in the English yeah. pyramid. AFC Wimbledon games that I've recently attended, 90 to 95% men, I'd say, and that might be generous uh, there. Um, and certainly that's my experience with the Premier League as well. I found some stats from the Premier League website from 2016, Graham, of the 13.6 million fans who attended the previous season to those stats, 2.6 million, 19% were female. Yep. Um, so that... That's, that suggests uh, an alignment with JE's uh, uh, observation there, but I would suggest the number is a little lower than that, Graham. Yeah, I, I also found that exact study, and I, I thought it was—it seemed slightly high, just going off the anecdotal evidence that I have. But yeah. who am I to to question? I guess that study. I couldn't find a direct comparison for MLS match-going fans, but I did find a study from 2020 last year that said that 46% of MLS fans are are women. I equally couldn't find a Premier League com direct comparison for for that because obviously that's counting all fans, not just match-going fans. But I would hazard a guess that that is higher, uh, quite a bit higher than it is in, in, in the Premier League. And using my anecdotal evidence, this is 100% my experience. I remember going to my first MLS game, which was a Toronto FC game at BMO, and I went with my brother 
And in front of us, I'll always remember it, in front of us was a, a couple who were clearly on a, a first date or, or certainly an early date. And that scenario was just completely unfathomable to me, having come from English and in particular Scottish football, which is a very angry environment, shall we say, <laughs> to go on a first date to St Mirren versus Livingston or an Old Firm match. Um, yeah, that doesn't happen very often. And, and uh, again, going back to anecdotal evidence, the number of MLS games I've been to, there just seems to be a, a much higher number of, of women and girls in the stands, which is, is, is excellent. And I do wonder how much, how much of that is down to the greater women's soccer heritage that there is in the United States. It's only really now that women's soccer is starting to kind of break the mainstream in the UK. The the Women's Super League here has a, a new Sky Sports, um, a shared Sky Sports BBC broadcast rights deal, which is, is a massive, massive deal here. But that's only just happened this year. Whereas it's in the States, obviously, there is a, a much more ingrained women's soccer culture. And I, and I do wonder whether that has a knock-on effect of how um, comfortable women and girls are going to men's soccer matches and obviously that is fantastic. I think the, the launch of the, the Premier League in the 90s focused on making football a much more family friendly affair and that I think that certainly has improved mm. in that regard. It's certainly a lot more welcoming environment for, for children but it still feels to me like there's a long way to go to making that environment more welcoming to women. I, I don't actually have a great a great deal of suggestions. That's maybe something that you would need to do a, a more kind of listening to and, and and maybe a bit more study, but it's certainly somewhere where there, there's, there needs to be more progress, in my opinion. I'm aware that I'm asking uh, two uh, straight men for their perspective on this one, but yeah. is there, like, do you feel like there is a cultural, cultural stigma for women and girls in the UK about going to football? Like, is there... A, like if if a 16 year old is going to a game is she going to like is her friends going to say like oh that's great or are they going to be like why would you go to football like do you see what I'm asking like is it a a thing that is an event or is it a thing that is sort of weird to go to almost I I uh, yeah I was just gonna say Graham, I think 20, <laughs> 20 years ago I think that would have been a thing mm -hmm. but maybe not now is that fair to okay. say Graham yeah, it's it's difficult for me to draw on it from the from the the female side of things. I, I when my kind of evidence that I would have is I have seen women at football matches being heckled by men, which is obviously dreadful, and uh, it feels like we should be well beyond that. And yeah. so I I do wonder whether that's this you know if you're a woman or a girl would would you want to even run the risk of that by going to a men's football match? And as I say, that's obviously terrible. Um, and I do feel like maybe. We haven't come out of that 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 prehistoric age, that culture, well, and I wish that would change. Well, Graham, you, you have a point there about about going to games in general in the UK. It's it's a less sanitized affair, if I may say, than in in the US. Um, like for example, when I didn't go to games when I was quite young because the the language would have been unsuitable for me. That was what my parents decided, and I know many people who are the same thing. It's not. It can be a, a fairly hostile environment to go to games in in the UK and Europe, whereas. Sporting events, I've found, anecdotally speaking, uh, not just in soccer, but in other sports in the US, are a little more of a sanitized affair. It's a little more family friendly. It's a little more, you know, you're encouraged to bring the whole family along. And and people do. And I think, is, is that is that fair to say, Taylor? Because yeah. you've obviously watched um, um, on both continents as well. You, yeah. could, you, you can know where I'm coming from there. I do. And, and I think, honestly, that is a large part explained by the kind of role that soccer has played in American society. Like, basically, over the course of my life, that I think 
In the 80s, it's certainly not as big of a thing. The U.S. not qualifying for World Cups until 1990. I don't think, I think it was basically like you were sort of an outlier if you were playing soccer. I think that's not the case anymore. But when I was a teenager, I think as MLS is starting and, and you have like local teams picking up steam, they're all appealing to families. They want families to go to the games because that's four and five people attending and buying tickets. But then there's food packages and things like that. So you're going to make more money. But I think soccer for a while at least, was a more, I would hesitate to say sanitized, uh, though I think that's a, that's a fair word to use, Ryan. I would just say, like, I think it was seen as the, like, it's more cultural because it's the global game, but I think it's also just a more, it's a safer game to play. It's, like, more wholesome almost than than other games that are more reliant on physical contact and violence and things like that. Like, maybe that's me, like, doing PR for soccer, but I think that's the perception it had for a very long time, and so it's the almost alternative sport in the United States, whereas in most other countries in Europe, it's the primary sport. It is the NFL and NBA and Major League Baseball kind of rolled into one. So I think that is probably also part of the disconnect. That said, I think, Ryan, you're right that there has been a movement in American sports to make them just more open for everybody. And there's still work to be done there, certainly. But I think there is an element of all are welcome. We want everybody here. We want pink hats at Red Sox games. Like I think mm-hmm. there's there's certain things done to make the sports at least theoretically seem more open. Again, I think for money purposes, maybe yeah. less so in England. The other question I had, though, about England before we move on, like I think my assumption has always been that it's hard to get tickets as well. And maybe that's just me as a foreigner not understanding how it works. But I think I've always kind of assumed that tickets are a like a, a greater commodity. They're going to have to pay more. It's going to be harder to get. And so if they're in demand, there is going to be less like, hey, I've got eight tickets for the family sort of a, sort of a situation. Well, no, because I think tickets are more expensive to US sports, particularly the NFL. Maybe not soccer and MLS, but certainly um, ticket prices are generally speaking yeah, lower I mean the than, demand, than in the US. The demand and, for them. And there's always going to be a game you can watch. If it's not a Premier League game, you can go lower down the pyramid True. to watch a game. Um, I think I used the word sanitize, Taylor. Like, as an example, a recent AFC Wimbledon game I went to a, a few weeks back, um, we sit we were sitting a few rows behind the visiting bench and the manager was a rotund gentleman who had this pointed out to him over and over again by the home fans as a, you know, sort of a psyching out kind of thing. And I was sitting there thinking, my, like a, a few weeks before that, I brought my two daughters who were both under eight years old to, to this game. And I was thinking if they were sitting here listening to this and effectively fat shaming someone, this is not a good example for them. And on top of that, you've got all the foul language that's coming and all the usual stuff you get with, with that kind of game. And then I think to US sports, where yes, you get bad behavior, but say at a, at a Carolina Panthers game, for example, to, to which I, I, I've been to many of those games, if you're misbehaving or you use bad language, there's a number you can text and have someone thrown out for that. So it's a little bit yeah. different in those terms. Yeah, I think you all just have to like concern yourselves with people yelling hurtful and racist things we just named the teams hurtful and racist things and then that's how we get away with kind of incorporating those things in that's how that works yikes <laughs> oh boy. i mean i like i'm from richmond richmond is like historically virginia leans towards washington franchise teams and they are now the washington football team right still sticking with that one uh still not really fully moving away from that old name good stuff mm, guys good stuff not quite uh, but in jay's question he does ask if there's any effort to get more women interested in spending money to attend pl games i'm not sure specifically graham but i think my, my take on that the answer to that question is that it's the premier league itself which has 
very much become made soccer at the top level a more inclusive and family friendly product because before that in the 80s yeah. soccer games even at the top level weren't a pleasant place to be in many cases problems with hooliganism you know the, the aforementioned stuff we're talking about with bad behavior whereas now all seated stadiums it's all it's gone a little way towards being more sanitized to use that word uh once again to make it a bit trite but um I th- would you agree with that, Graham? That the, the actual trend of the Premier League is becoming oh, more yeah. family and friendly, and to, to minorities, to, to females, and to and, and to and to getting young people in stadiums as well. Yeah, I, th- I think I think it's fair to say it's, it's a lot better since the the launch of the Premier League. That the actual the, the launch of the Premier League was very much focused around borrowing a lot of the American sports principles that, that you previously mentioned. Yeah. You know, that was a central premise of the of the whole concept. So yes, it's it's definitely a lot better. Whether there there are there are things happening right now to, to get women more interested in spending money on, on Premier League, I actually I actually don't know if there is because it feels like to me a lot of the effort is going into the women's super league. And I know the women's super super league is a different organization to the Premier League, but there seems to be quite a lot of collaboration between those two. There are um, ideas like getting, um, I think Arsenal women's maybe played played a game before Arsenal men's in preseason or, or something like that. Yeah. So there's there's ideas to try and get a lot of the 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 men's team supporters who obviously naturally have have bigger or I should say historically have bigger supports trying to get them over to to the kind of women's super league. So it feels like that is where the effort is at the moment. And I hope maybe once we make some progress there, then maybe we can have a little bit more focus on getting more women into the men's game because that that really would kind of be equality on both sides, I think. It would indeed. JE, thank you very much for the question. More questions after these short messages. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. 
So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Total Soccer Show, we are back. I hope you enjoyed those messages and you used the code TSS where appropriate, guys. Jonathan Sieg <laughs> has a question. Now that it's easy to watch the Scottish Premiership on Paramount+, Plus, I've been watching more games but don't know much beyond the old firm. For Graham, what are the other interesting current or historical narratives to engage with? What are some young Scottish national players across the league to keep an eye on? The Scottish Premiership, as Jonathan says, is now on Paramount. They acquired the rights over the this summer. They now have over 2,000 matches per season. I'm sounding like a press release, but I'm quite impressed with that. Uh, 2,000 matches a season, Graham. That's almost as much as you watch in a month, isn't it? I am surprised that that wasn't an old firm Derby joke. (laughs) (laughs) I I could have gone in one or two directions and you gave me the other one there. But uh, Paramount, you know, they've got Champions League, Europa League, CONCACAF qualifiers, Serie A, and they also have the Scottish Premiership as mentioned here. I had a little look, Graham, and on Paramount Plus this weekend, you can see Dundee United versus Dundee. The Crocodile Derby, Mm -hmm. anyone call it that apart from me? No, just me? Uh, No, just you. Excellent. (laughs) Uh, It looks like they sort of have one to two games per round, but it's still very much there. And US fans can also uh, subscribe to Scottish Premiership Clubs' respective streaming services for home and away matches as well. But that was a little more pricey. Uh, And the Scottish Premiership was on ESPN Plus uh, last season and BR Live before that. BR Live, yikes. Anyway, Graham, over to you. Yeah, so first thing, I'm, I'm really pleased that, that history is mentioned in this question because that's arguably the biggest selling point that we have. You know, we have these near ancient clubs with deep, deep roots and communities. We've been doing this longer than, than basically anyone else in, in world football. And I feel like we, we don't make enough of that. In fact, sometimes it feels like we're almost a little bit ashamed of that, that we are you know, we, we have these old clubs and maybe we don't have the excitement and the hype of new MLS franchises like American soccer does, but we really, we really should be shouting from the rooftops that we have these, these, these ancient clubs. So for, for a current narrative, I'd, I'd point to two of those ancient clubs. So Hearts and Hibernian. So Hearts are, are back in the same division as Hibernian this season. They got promoted back to the, to the top flight. And that's a really historic rivalry that has, religious and political roots but maybe not to the same toxic extent that the old firm derby has it's maybe slightly more palatable i'm not saying that everything that that happens in that match and that rivalry is, is squeaky clean but both of those clubs are very ambitious clubs but they're doing things in a really different way so hearts have just become fan owned entirely um i believe they might be they're certainly one of the biggest fan-owned clubs in Britain. They're the biggest fan-owned club in, in Scotland. Hibs, on the other hand, who are equally as ambitious, have this an American owner called called Ron Gordon, who is I thought questioning... you were going to say Roman Roy from Succession there, Graham. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, he bought the wrong club. Uh, <laughs> That's right. Which one did he yeah, buy? Was so... it Hearts? Um, the, the funniest thing about Succession is that um, Logan Roy, that's the, that's the Rupert Murdoch guy, isn't it? Yeah. Logan yeah. Roy. Um, they're from Dundee, but yet he supports, is it Hearts that he supports? I thought so. But 
bit strange that <laughs> I mean I get it if you're from Dundee and you support Celtic or Rangers that's common but Hearts or Hibs that's a bit weird but anyway Hibs in, in real life not in succession have an American owner called Ron Gordon and he is questioning everything about Scottish football from the structure of the league to the way that we market things and actually this week just yesterday a, an independent review of the whole league was sanctioned by um, Hibs and Hearts and Dundee and Dundee United and Aberdeen and those five clubs of those five clubs three of them have American owners or American based owners and that is a that's a really interesting trend across Scottish football right now because we have a number of owners who are trying to do things a little bit differently and none of them are at Celtic or Rangers so you have Dave Cormack at Aberdeen who's perhaps the best example of this he is a businessman who lives in Atlanta he's forged a relationship with Atlanta United um, Stephen Glass, who MLS fans might remember from a brief cameo in, in charge of, of Atlanta United, he's now the manager of Aberdeen, and he's trying to do things like improve the match day atmosphere at Pitodre. They got rid of Derek McInnes, who was a, a, a very successful and pop, well, largely popular. Towards the end, he wasn't that popular manager, and they're trying to impose a more attractive style of play. And then you have American owners at Dundee, and between Cormac, John Nelms, Gordon, as I say, there's this new group of, of owners trying to force through some some change and do things a little bit differently. So for me, that's a really interesting narrative looking outside the old firm. And then to take the second part of that, this question, I realise I've been speaking for a while now, but some young players uh, in, in, in the Scottish Premiership, I'm going to mention three. So David Turnbull, a 22-year-old, um, he's very much a modern midfielder who can do it all. He plays for Celtic. In my opinion, he'll be in the Premier League, the English Premier League, within the next couple of years. Then there's Nathan Patterson. I think I've mentioned him before on this on this podcast. He's already a full Scotland international at 19. He's playing Europa League football for Rangers. Everton wanted him in the summer. And again, it feels like it's only a matter of time until he's in the, in the English Premier League. And then the third one I'm going to mention is Calvin Ramsey, who has burst onto the scene for Aberdeen. Another creative right-back. We've had so many left-backs and no right-backs for so long. So to have two in Patterson and Ramsey is really good now. And he was, he's apparently wanted by Everton and Premier League clubs as well. So three players who I'm mentioning because I think listeners to the pod, this podcast might be hearing more about them in the Premier League. So that's Turnbull, Patterson and Calvin Ramsey. Graham, forgive me if you if you mentioned this. Is there a club that you think of as being historically like more inclined to give young players or academy players a chance versus kind of sticking with 30, 31-year-olds? Yeah, you you asked asked me this before, and I, I did yeah. struggle for an answer. But I, th- I think maybe Dundee United are, are quite good. So Andy Robertson, despite the fact he didn't actually come through their youth system, it was really at Dundee United that he got a chance, and then got his move to Hull City. Um, you have a number. They they they've had a number of young players come through. Stuart Armstrong, another one at, at, um, who plays for Southampton now, he came through Dundee United. Um, Ryan Gold, who MLS fans will know, he yes. came through Dundee United as well. So Archie th- yeah, Nickerson. Dun- Archie Nickerson. <laughs> is that a name you know? <laughs> uh, I mean, it is now. Now that I All have right, the okay, sure. in front of me. <laughs> okay, cool. Uh, yes, that is a name. <laughs> Um, but yes, Dundee United traditionally do tend to give more opportunities yeah. to youngsters. They have a, a coach at the moment, Tam Courts, who has come through kind of the the system, the youth system himself, to become a manager. He's he's come through the youth ranks, so that kind of helps. So yes, I would say there's no one quite on the level of I don't know who, who would who'd be like Borussia Dortmund. There's not yeah. a Borussia Dortmund of Scottish football or anything like that. But Dundee United are, are pretty close. And then the other reason to care about the Dundee clubs would be because if you ever do football trivia, that that will inevitably be a question about like which 
uh, Derby stadiums are located the closest yeah. together, and that's Derby and Dar- or Dundee and, and Dundee United, right? They're like a block away or like twenty feet away or something like that. They're, yeah, they're quite literally on the same street, Tannadice Street. <laughs> um, which, if you if you have it, if you don't know about this, I would I would encourage you to Google Danny Dyer reaction to uh, Dundee <laughs> football clubs. It's uh, very amusing. I would I would advise you not to Google anything to do with Danny Dyer, listener. By the way, as a as a counter to that point. <laughs> um, but I, I mean, think, are you trying to say that I shouldn't have watched the Football Factory several times? Because yeah, that was a mistake. Oh, Taylor, <laughs> two thousand <laughs> matches per season on Paramount Plus, and you're watching the Football Factory. It's been a while. This was when Green Street Hooligans came out, and I was like, oh, this is a culture to be celebrated. And then very quickly realized it was the opposite of that. Oh, dear. While we're talking about um, subscri- thank you very much, Graham, by the way, for that on on, on uh, the Scottish Premiership. No problem. Uh, while we are talking about uh, subscriptions and uh, US coverage, which, by the way, I think we need to emphasize the fact that US fans uh, really have it really good in co- in terms of the coverage of yeah. soccer and the amount of games you can see. It's incredible. Not just seeing every Premier League game, but the just the breadth on Paramount Plus alone. And then you add just- into that ESPN Plus. It's incredible, Graham. Yeah, just just when you were mentioning what Paramount Plus have on the Scottish Premiership, I'm thinking that I think that's more than what we get. I'm pretty sure that's more than what we get, and it's the same with the the Premier League. You know, Cristiano Ronaldo's debut at the weekend there was not live on British TV, uh, and we we obviously have this three to five p.m. blackout. So yeah, absolutely, American soccer fans, you ha- you guys have it good with their uh, TV games. Graham, did you do a naughty and watch that one live? My lawyer says I have to say no. Excellent answer, <laughs> excellent answer. But before we move away from the right stuff, gents, uh, the, the the story about the NBC's coverage uh, has come up here. Uh, uh, the Premier League reportedly wanting to double the cost of their rights package for the US. Uh, they're now seeking $300 million per season. NBC currently paying around $150 million per season. They're in the last year of their six-year deal. Taylor, what do you make of that? Um, I'm thinking they're going to have a bit of competition for this package. Uh, you know, ESPN might be back in. CBS would likely want a piece of this pie. Even Amazon, DAZN, Apple TV Plus, we could see the rights moving, which would be a shame considering how much yep. NBC have done for the Premier League and maybe the sport of soccer in the last five years. But also, Peacock. Yeah, I mean, it it was definitely a frustrating thing for, I think, a lot of people to have Peacock crashing this weekend. Mm. So I understand why people might not agree with what I'm about to say, but I think the Premier League should stay on NBC for as long as NBC wants the Premier League to be there. Because I do think, I mean, lest we forget, they are responsible for Ted Lasso. So there's already that. But I think what they have done to sort of make it mainstream, to streamline the way we watch things. Come on. what? <laughs> I know, I, I realise it's sacrilege <laughs> to say that I, I don't really like Tide Lasso, but oh well, there we go. I mean, I just think it's like they've done creative things that have had a lasting sure. impact, uh, both in terms Grant, of Tide Lasso. you but barely then- like your own birthday, come on. This, this is true. There's not many things that I like other than <laughs> Andy Murray. <laughs> Sorry, Taylor. <laughs> Iron Brew? You like Iron Brew? Oh, yeah, yeah, I do like Iron Brew. We always have to have the moment of the show where we pick Graham back up and remind him all the positive things in life. Uh, Yeah, so I know I think NBC and then just the the coverage itself, uh, I've really enjoyed since they've had it. I think Rebecca Lowe is better at her job than pretty much anybody else in the world. So uh, as long as she remains involved, I am on board for NBC uh, retaining the Premier League. Agreed. NBC do an excellent job. I concur. Joe, do you concur? 
I concur. I enjoy the stuff they do. Uh, I, I don't also don't think it's unreasonable for the Premier League to be asking for a higher rate for those rights. Um, but mm-hmm. we'll see what happens. It is it is interesting to watch as a neutral observer how these various companies fight over these rights. MLS is going to be in a similar situation. U.S. Soccer is in a similar situation. It's happening with properties all across the world, and there is a battle, which is as you guys have mentioned, Graham and Ryan, a good thing for soccer watching in the United States. And I'm fortunate enough to live here and watch all the. Soccer. America. I am fortunate enough to have a bookmark of firsttouchonline.com so I can look up where every game is every weekend because it's really hard to tell these days with streaming and whatnot. And I'm sounding like I'm 100 years old, so let's move on from that <laughs> to one last question from Jackie Joy. Hey, Jackie, thanks for your question. Was Josh Sargent called up too early? Would he have had more success now if he had, for instance, gone to the Under-20 World Cup in 2019 rather than training with the senior team that summer? Uh, Josh Sargent may had his first senior call-up in November 2017. He became the only American player ever to appear in under-17, under-20 and senior camp in the same calendar year. Got his first full cap in May 2018, age 18. For me, gents, on the surface, I don't think you could, 18 is too young to go into the camp. I don't think um, it could necessarily hamper a player's development to go into the senior team at that point. Maybe it's more good than bad. Maybe I'm reading too surface into that, though. Joe, your thoughts? No, I don't think you're reading at, at a surface level here at all, Ryan. I, I think Josh Sargent was brought along at an appropriate rate for the talented youth, pro- youth prospect he was. As you mentioned, getting getting called up to the senior team in 2017, scoring his first international goal in 2018. And then I, I think the crux of Jackie's question and the, the specific example that she is referencing here was in the summer of 2019, where Sargent was called up to U.S. Men's National Team camp ahead of the Gold Cup that would take place later that summer. And as that Gold Cup, pre-Gold Cup camp really was happening, Sargent was left off of the U-20 World Cup roster, assuming then, we, or at least we all assumed, that that meant he was going to play at the Gold Cup. And, and so the U-20 World Cup's already happening, Sargent's not there, he's training and, and working on being in training with the U.S. Men's National Team's senior team, and then the Gold Cup roster comes out later in the summer, and Josh Sargent's not on it. And that is, I think, what Jackie is referencing here, him going and training with the senior team and not appearing at a tournament instead of going to the U20 World Cup where he would have been a shoe-in starter for that team. So that was an unfortunate circumstance, right? It apparently, it was some sort of injury to Sebastian Legette that then forced Greg Berhalter to have to change his roster construction and leave Sargent as the third center forward off of that roster. So that's, that's an unfortunate series of events, but I don't think it has any major impact on where he is as a player right now, right? Because I think that's the underlying tone of what Jackie's asking. If things had gone differently in Josh Sargent's previous national team career, would that have an effect on where he is now as a player with club and country? And I don't, I don't think so, really. I don't think changing the events that took place in the summer of 2019 and having him at the U20 World Cup or having him at, at, you know, with the U.S. Men's National Team at the Gold Cup, maybe it would have gotten him a move from Werder Bremen, but he hadn't been there you know, all that long at that point. I don't think changing the events of that summer really affect Sargent's game right now and make him suddenly a more threatening presence in the box or anything like that. I don't think it masks or helps him dramatically improve any of the things he's bad at, really. So I'm not sure that changing the course of history would really affect Josh Sargent's game all that much now in 2021. Taylor, your thoughts on this? The butterfly effect of changing the past. Uh, I, first of all, we shouldn't do that. That's what I think there have been three of those movies now. I've seen none of them, but I believe that is what we're taught uh, is don't change the past. And I agree with Joe that I don't think he was called up too soon. I think there's an argument to be made that he was called up too consistently. And I'm not even blaming him for that. And I'm not blaming Greg Berhalter necessarily. I think it's just that we didn't have a ton of 
uh, striker options. And then the ones we did would in- intermittently get injured. And the ones that were also there maybe weren't as inspiring. And so I think he kept getting called in at a time when maybe that didn't help so much because it didn't feel like he fit the system specific, like particularly well. And I think that keeps being the case that we see some of the the downside to him not being as fluent in the system that Burhalter wants to run. And I think there's other cases where you call in this really exciting uh, goal scorer to show that they're on the radar, to show that they're going to be involved. Maybe you give them 15 or 30 minutes. Maybe you let them start a game in a friendly. But then until they prove that they can sort of elevate their game and move to that next level, they don't get called in. They get time to kind of focus on their club level. But I think because there weren't any other options or strong enough options, he kept getting called in. And when you have a player who keeps getting called in but isn't performing to the level that like is required or is expected, then that pressure starts to mount, then it starts to build, and then I think the the needle turns from positive to negative, and I think that's where we are with Josh Sargent right now. So I think there's an argument to be made that he was called in at an appropriate time, but that he kept getting those call-ups when it felt like it wasn't quite fitting. That maybe, I think, has led us to the situation we're in now. Graham, any thoughts on this one? And if not, any thoughts on why Sergeant doesn't spell his surname correctly, like the military rank? <laughs> uh, I don't have any thoughts on that. Uh, but I, gen- generally speaking, I, I am actually, just to, to kind of give maybe the other side, and obviously I, I maybe don't know this case as well, specifically as, as Taylor is, and, and Joe do, but I always think getting young players tournament experience at youth level is is, is pretty important, and I think it's it's a big reason why Germany are tournament specialists at senior level because they make um, so many of their young players go to the under twenty World Cup and they go to the under twenty one Euros and they and it's their top young players that go to these tournaments so that when they come in to the national team, the senior national team, which is maybe slightly later than other national teams or other countries would have done, they're ready for for that for that stage. And as I say, using Germany as an example, I think that's maybe why they're so good at tournaments. And so maybe there might have been a you know, and I understand everything that Taylor and Joe are saying about the, the specific circumstances around Sargent and why he why he didn't go to that tournament. But maybe if he just maybe if the plan had been just for him to go to that tournament all along, that that might have it wouldn't have changed his club career or anything. But in terms of the national team, maybe he might have been a little bit more experienced. I, I don't know. De- dealing in in hypotheticals here, but just just something I thought was worth mentioning. No, Graham, I think I think you're right. It would have had value for him to play at a tournament that summer, and it was a mismanagement of that situation. Maybe it was outside of. Greg Berhalter's control. I do have sympathy for you know having a player go down and having to change your squad accordingly when it's someone as versatile as Sebastian Legette. But it, it was an unfortunate turn of events for Josh Sargent and playing somewhere that summer I think would have helped him in some way and that that didn't happen is unfortunate but I, I, don't, I don't know that overall it would have had a dramatic effect on his development and where he is now as a player which I guess is just me repeating what I said earlier so I'm going to be quiet now everybody. <laughs> oh, we never want you to be quiet, Joe. We love it when you talk and say words. <laughs> and on that note, thank you very much, Joe Lowry. Thank you, Jackie Choi, for that question. Thank you, listener, for uh, submitting your questions. Uh, please continue to do so. We are all of a stop. All of a stop? That's not a phrase. We are done for this episode. Taylor Orkel, thank you very much for your time. Uh, right back at you, my friend. Joe Lowry, thanks again. Oh, thank you, Ryan. Graham Rosman, always a pleasure, sir. Thank you very much. You're very welcome, Ryan. Thank you. Italian internet, no thank you for making it very difficult for me to record today, but our edit will make sure, listener, it was a pleasure for you to listen to. Thank you very much. Bye! (laughs) 
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.